Well, we are getting into the word this morning with the end of Saul. And this is another really challenging topic, but I hope you'll really be blessed as we read through as we read through the word here. So, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 28. And we will actually spend some time reading the word, but we're not going to stand and read it together in that way. So this is not the end of the series, because we're actually continuing into 2 Samuel chapter 1, but is the end of Saul. There's a bit of feedback on this. Actually, I think it's the subwoofer, maybe Marcello, maybe you could help. So unfortunately, and you can go to the next slide, Saul's life verse is one that we don't want to have, and Saul's life verse is probably this one. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death, and that is from the book of Proverbs. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. So let's see what happens through Saul's life. It's actually some of the best written narrative in the whole of Scripture. So I think you'll really enjoy actually the process of learning through the story, not necessarily learning in point fashion, but learning as we look at Saul's life. So we'll start with 1 Samuel 28. Sorry, we're going to chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul, earlier, had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. The Lord didn't answer him because the Lord through Samuel had already told him everything that he needed to know, and Saul had not repented of his disobedience against God. So they told him, there is one in Endor, verse 7 and verse 8. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. So Saul is sort of coming to new depths here, even disguising himself to go find a medium, which in his previous more righteous life he had eradicated from the land, but he does find one. So he knows very well that anything to do with the occult is expressly forbidden by God. That's very clear in scripture. And that would include anything like folk magic or channeling, witchcraft, and certainly any attempt to communicate with the dead. There are a couple of scriptures up here on our next slide that you can jot down to look up later if you're interested in learning more about it. The occult is experiencing a resurgence in our Western culture. And it's so recent even that as I was reading through commentaries, some of them being older were saying, this is not really a problem in our Western culture, but it occurs in other countries around the world. That's not true anymore, you probably know, due to the fact, I think partly that people are recognizing the reality of the supernatural, that what we see is not all there is, and that's a good thing. But they're seeing their need to have some supernatural help but they're ignorantly, or perhaps even rebelliously, trying to get that without God. 
Sometimes people are even drawn to witchcraft because it offers a kind of power that they haven't experienced in their life, maybe a control over circumstances or even a control over people. In the very best cases, any attempt to deal with the occult is perhaps at least it's deceit and fakery. It's, you know, there might be some, um, some tricks in there, there might be some deceit, but many times it can be very dangerous. It can open a door to the supernatural and we end up not with power, but under the power of our soul's enemy. So anything we do to create results, like a mantra that we repeat that's not biblical, or for, for example, even like a necklace that we wear as a talisman or to bring luck, certainly calling on any kind of spirit or energy that is not God is dangerous. Inviting the supernatural apart from relationship with God is inviting that enemy of our soul to have authority in our lives. And there is a dark side with real power to bring addiction, fear, control, and more. And for some of you, this is very real. As I'm giving you this warning, you say, I already know this. And I just want to tell some of you that it's not too late. If maybe you have opened that door in the past, maybe you're still in it now. But submitting to God gives you real power over the occult. It gives you freedom. And the one who is in you is greater than the enemy, the enemy who wants to destroy you. So if you have any concerns about that, if this really rings true for you, just talk to me or one of the other pastors after the service, and we'd love to talk to you and pray with you. But I really want to give all of us a warning as our friends and our neighbors around us are giving more and more authority to the occult. We notice as we look back to 1 Samuel 15, this is a bit of a turning point in the book that we've looked at earlier. This is the day that Saul's downfall began. The prophet Samuel said a few things to him. He talked about obedience, and he talked about his kingdom being taken away, and he said to him, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, which seemed in that scenario a bit strange to make that connection. Like, what are you saying? That rebellion is really bad. Okay, we get it. But now we see that it was actually a bit of a prophetic utterance that Saul's compromises over time have actually led him into openness to the demonic. So verse 9, the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Mary Evans points out the irony that Saul invokes God's name twice to tell her that God's judgment is nothing to worry about. She's the one putting the pause and saying, this doesn't seem like a good idea, and maybe you're even trying to trap me here. And he says, you know what? God wants this, so you're not going to get in trouble for this, which obviously is not true. Then the woman asked, verse 11, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. Now Samuel in the past, right, was his prophet, the one who spoke from God to him, and they had a complicated relationship, but he obviously feels the need to hear from Samuel at this point. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. If you're, if you're surprised by her reaction, you have to realize that occult practices rely on the deception of the devil. Mediums don't actually have power over the dead. Only God has power over the dead. The demons that they interact with can sometimes look like real people, but they are not. Only God has the power and authority to do that. So when she saw Samuel himself, she was terrified. This is not what she expected. 
and something about his appearance makes it very clear that Saul is the one before her. And Samuel said what you might expect him to say, speaking still from the grave from the Lord, which is very strange, but cool. He said, why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn your kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. So he's just explaining, this is what we talked about. This is what I said would happen. So remember, back in that turning point chapter, 1 Samuel 15, that Saul disobeyed God's call to completely destroy the Amalekites. And while our instinct might be out of compassion to spare the women and the children or something like that, Saul spared the evil king and the cattle, the things that would be useful to him, the things that he felt he wanted. And because of that, the Lord said, you have not obeyed. As, and then he made excuses. He blamed it on the men in his army. And the answer to his problem was so clear. It was repentance. But Saul never admitted he was wrong. Nothing to this point has changed. Saul has not gone on his face before the Lord and said, yes, I disobeyed. I took my own way. I'm sorry. Please help me. Saul might not have all the stories of repentance in Scripture that we have, and there are a lot, but he does have the Torah, the books of the law that say over and over again, where if you're reading through them, you almost get a little tired of it. They say, here's the way of God. Obey him. Don't think I'll be safe even though I go my own way. If you don't obey God, things will not go well for you. But even at that point, if you repent and turn back to God, he'll rescue you and he'll help you and he'll bring you back to a place of flourishing. And then if you again disobey God, the answer is to repent and turn back to God and he will rescue you and help you. Joseph said in an earlier message that we don't have a Psalm 51 from Saul. And that has really stuck with me. I found that a very profound contrast. That's David's psalm of repentance. So let's actually read through a little bit of that. Here are some things I think that Saul could have said to God. Hopefully you can read this. We'll stay seated. I will read, though, the first lines, and you'll read the ones that are highlighted sort of in gray there. If you can read them, then read along with me. So these, these are some words from Psalm 51 that Saul could have said to the Lord. And these are words that are always good for us to say to the Lord. So, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You are right in your verdict. Create in me a pure heart, O God. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. Yes, Lord. Amen. And that's always our prayer to the Lord and what we can pray, what David taught us to pray. But Saul hasn't prayed anything like this. If anything, over the years, he's become more selfish and manipulative. He's made more and more choices out of his sin. One of his low points was murdering all of the citizens of a city that had sheltered David, all of them, just out of his anger and out of his jealousy. So he doesn't repent. He expresses disappointment. He expresses anger at the consequences of his disobedience, but he always deflects or blames or excuses. 
So I'm actually going to read now what happens after that. The Lord will deliver, this is sort of what uh, Samuel is telling him, the Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. How's that for a prophecy? Immediately, Saul, as we might expect, fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. So in the next two chapters, the tale goes back to David, who, interestingly, he has to fight a battle to rescue his people from those Amalekites that Saul did not destroy. But he does that with God's help. Then we return to the account of Saul's death. And you'll notice that, like David, the writer of Samuel actually treats Saul's death with great respect, despite not wanting to, him to be an example. And Eugene Peterson says that this is a great example of how we can talk about our leaders with sadness and disappointment sometimes, but with respect. So now we're in 1 Samuel 31. You can turn there if you want. If you need a Bible, there are some in the back. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Verse 8. The next day... When the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. They sent messengers through the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temples of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtrists and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So this is how Saul ends. This is not how any of us want to end. This is not how anyone expected Saul to end. You remember his gifts and his calling, the prophetic anointing upon him. But he makes this request to his armor bearer, and I don't even think that's an indication of cowardice, because honestly, it's incredible to me that he went out to lead a battle knowing he was going to die, knowing it was going to be excess he was going to be unsuccessful. But he's worried about Philistine torture and for good reason. The Philistines, we know, are sort of Game of Thrones-level brutal. So you see they take his body, they violate it, they hang it for the birds and for the mockery of the people. And this is really what the enemies of God want to do to us. You think about Jesus on the cross. They want to mock him and humiliate him. They want to hurt him and to kill him. But after that, they really want to display his body as a trophy of their triumph. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish biblical scholar from the past century, describes the scene this way. And now it was night, 
and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bethshan, amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. But this bleak scene, if you were reading along with me, you notice it's not the last word on Saul, actually. Because when the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men, I just love this story, they marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall and went to Jabesh where they burned them. They took their bones and buried them, and they fasted seven days. So these are the people that Saul rescued in that first victory. Remember when the Ammonite king wanted to gouge out their eyes to show his power over them, and Saul was led by the Spirit to come and rescue them? They didn't forget. And now we see their loyalty to Saul and his sons, even to rescue their bodies from dishonor. This bittersweet tribute reminds us, though, of what could have been, how beautiful it was when Saul was obeying God's mission, and instead the tragic spiral of his life away from God. But there is hope. There may not have been hope for Saul, but there's hope for you and me, for our friends, for those around us. After a journey into sin, tragedy is not inevitable. There's another Saul in Scripture who began well but started to look like he might end very badly. So my family is deep, for obvious reasons, in baby name discussion. And it's really hard. Turns out it's harder when you're on your fourth child because the names kind of have to go together and some rule each other out. Anyways, we're working really hard on this. So we're thinking about baby names, like what it means, if there's a person the name connects to, like, but I'm not sure what this guy's parents were thinking of naming him after King Saul. Like, I'm not judging, but I kind of am. It's sort of in the category of, like, Cain or Jezebel or Delilah, you know, these are just not names you want, right? So Saul of Tarsus is usually called Paul in scripture because that's his Latin name, and he worked with Greeks and Romans. Like King Saul, he started off well. He was born into a religious family. He describes himself this way. He says, I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, same tribe as King Saul, by the way, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, he was accepted to study under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the most brilliant teachers in all Jewish history. He has a clear mission and ministry from God to teach the scripture. But when we meet him in Acts, he's the guy holding the coats for the people who are literally stoning Stephen, the martyr for Jesus. Scripture continues with more and more indications that he did what was right in his own eyes, and he got more and more violent in the process. He thought Christians were wrong, so he made a point to seek them out. He breathed murderous threats against them. That's how Scripture puts it, and it kind of sounds familiar. He traveled outside of Jerusalem to go and take prisoners back to Jerusalem. It's on that road, though, of course, that Jesus confronts him, much like Samuel confronts Saul and says that Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. And here he has this choice like King Saul, to keep disobeying, keep going his own way, or to repent, to recognize the wrong he has done, and turn around. He's just as stubborn as King Saul, but he humbles himself to repent and obey God, and obey God's specific directions all throughout the rest of his life, even if he might have wanted to choose something else. And he becomes God's chosen instrument, to spread the gospel into the world, and he writes most of the New Testament by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's not too late. It's not too late for any of us. It's not too late for those people that we're praying for. And this is the verse I want to close with from Isaiah 30, 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest is your salvation. And the Lord is going to use that verse for different people in different ways. Maybe it's for hope or how to pray for somebody. Maybe it's just the Lord saying, hey, I just want you to give me that sin that you have shame about. I just want you to give it to me, and I will give you salvation. I will give you rest. I will give you freedom from that sin because that's his great desire for all of us.